Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. Just back now from Florida, and Chaim is telling me that today is the Arthur of David Ezra. That's a good one. David Ezra. I'm talking about David Ezra on the Chumash. There are several Ibn Ezra's. There's a very famous poet named Moshe Ibn Ezra, one of the greatest poets in Jewish history. But I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the uh, one who's in the, on the Mikras Gedolas, the famous Avraham Ibn Ezra. This is very interesting from the following point of view. The uh, Ezra is from the golden age of the Jews in Spain, meaning back in the 1100s. He lived born in 1090, I think, and he lived mainly in the 1100s. Which means you're talking about somebody who's about 40 years older than the Rambam, that kind of thing. And this is called, as I said before, the golden age of the Jews in Spain. That's a term that was created by non-from historians to glorify the Haskalah in Spain. Now, let me explain what I mean. There certainly was a big Haskalah movement in Spain in the 9, 10, 11, and 1200s. But it's not what you think. Today, when people hear the term Haskalah, they're thinking of the Haskalah movement of the 1800s in Eastern Europe, which was primarily, though not totally, but primarily non-from, opposed to uh, Yiddishkeit, let's say. And I get that. But a thousand years ago, you had a big Haskalah movement in Spain, and it was totally Shomer Taramises. What do I mean when I use this term? This is what I want to get across in a few minutes I have with you this morning. By Haskalah, we mean those who say or live a life in which it's not just all Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. The Jewish culture has always had two tracks. Among the from. Those of us, what, what we call today yeshivish. So everything is gemar, gemar, gemar. There's nothing else. That's what you learn, that's what you talk about, that's what you write about, that's what you think. And then there are others who are from Jews, but that didn't work for them. And they're interested in other parts of Jewish culture. Tanakh, dikduk, I don't know, poetry, philosophy. It's all from, but it's not gemar, gemar, gemar. Now the yeshiv world has never been comfortable with this. So what? It's out there. And so the Ibn Ezra is a perfect example of the fact. I gave a talk about this in Tinek actually last summer. Then when you see somebody who's a Rishon, he's not necessarily a Rishon. And I'll tell you what I mean by those words. If you ask somebody who's a Rishon, you say, oh, the big rabbis from a thousand years ago and that sort of thing, which is true, but not exactly. The Ibn Ezra is a perfect example. What if you have somebody that was a famous poet? But wasn't big in learning, not in Gemara learning, if we're defining the word learning, but Gemara. I'll give you an example. Yehuda Levi, Shlombim and Gaviro. These are very famous poets. They wrote a lot of poems that are brilliant. And they also wrote a lot of poems that have been incorporated into Siddur, into Slichas, Nakinas, and that sort of thing. No question about it. But they made no big mark 
as what we call Gedolim and Gemara. Now, there certainly are many Rishonim who did. I mean, for crying out loud, you got Rashi and Tosis and the Rambam and the Rif and the Ritva and the Rajva. Sure, no question about that. But you also had other types of people that are in the art school Rishonim book, and they have nothing to do with Gemara whatsoever. What do you do with somebody like Menachem ben Sruk, or Dunish ben Lebrat, or Yehudah ben Chayuj, or Yonah ben Janach, who spend all their life in Ivrit, and in Diktuk, and things like that. That's what they did. That was their bread and butter. Now, they were from, they were Shema Shabbos, they kept everything. I'm sure they put some time into going to Ashir and Gemara as well. But that's not what turned, that's not what, their, what, what, what animated them. Their passion was the Hebrew language, the grammar. I know it sounds crazy today, but at that time, people were very passionate about the Hebrew grammar and the verb forms and all that sort of thing. Or you had great poets that did amazing things in Hebrew poetry, but they weren't in the Gemara. You understand? Now, you could have somebody's in both, but I'm talking about people who weren't. So Ibn Ezra is from this category, Avram Ibn Ezra. He was a great Jewish scholar, I mean a big one, in the 1100s, uh, born in Spain, you know, a Sephardi, obviously, although not born in Muslim Spain, born in Tudel, all the way up north, near the French border. It's interesting, born in Christian Spain. He was obviously a person that's not Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. Now, on the other hand, he was very big in Ivrit. I would say he's one of the great champions of Lushan Kodesh in Jewish history. And he wrote books in this department, and he tried to get people in his time to switch away from Yiddish to Lushan Kodesh to Hebrew because the Jews in Spain spoke Yiddish. Now, I don't mean Yiddish. Yiddish is in Germany, but Spanish Yiddish. That is to say, Judeo-Arabic. The Jews in Spain used to write in and converse with each other in a dialect of Arabic, which is similar to German to Yiddish, same word to Arabic to Judeo-Arabic. The greatest people wrote in that kind of genre. I'll give an example. The Rambam, you heard of him? He wrote all of his books except for the Mornabuchim in Judeo-Arabic. That's what they did. Ibn Ezra was one of these people like Rabbi Huda Nasi. If you want to do something Jewish, write in perfect Hebrew. And he was a great perfectionist in Hebrew, in, in Ivrit. He also was into Diktuk. Ibn Ezra is a very great poet. He was part of that. Meaning, he wrote all these poems on a hundred different issues. Is this a Rishon? Meaning, is this what you think, like the Rajba, the Ritva, or somebody like that, or the Ran? He's writing commentaries on the Talmud, on Tosas. No, none of that. Ibn Ezra has religious poems, some of which end up in the Siddur. As you know, he has some Zemiros that ended up in the Zemiros on Shabbos. I forget which one. Then he has poems about life in general. He had a terrible life. That is to say, a lot of misfortunes. Uh, he was poor. He had to wander from place to place. His wife died when he was young. His kids ran away. One of them went off to Derech. He had a lot of tr- trouble in life. He never could find a, a place to sit down. And he writes poems about his misfortune. I remember he said, I tried to be Hatzlach in my life, make some money, I'm never successful. I was born under the wrong stars. He was a big believer in the stars and astrology. That's right, a lot of Rishonim, and he's famous for this, were big into astrology. Um, not only astronomy. By the way, he wrote books on astronomy. All the books of science that he wrote, and he wrote books on mathematics and astronomy, as they said before, and, uh, I don't know, other sciences of that type, all in perfect divrit. He was trying to show people that you can extend the Hebrew language even to cover secular subjects. That's the Haskalah, my man. That's the Haskalah. On the other hand, he was 100% from, right? He was 100% from, and he was respected by big rabbis. It's a, it's a, it's a funny thing. 
uh, is a, he has poems that are very humorous. Uh, you wouldn't imagine a big rabbi writing uh, along those lines. I like the one about chess. He's got a whole long poem about chess. There's a black army and a red army, and they advance at each other. You know, he describes the, the, the rook and the king and the queen and the bishops and all the rest of it. It's like amazing. And then he said, when it's all over and everybody's dead, they make a tres amazing and they, and, the, and they play a second game. You know, he has poems about, as they say before, the f- f- foibles of the rich. Ashkim lebeis asar parach. I go to somebody's house, hit him up for an adult, and they tell me he already left. When I come in the evening, he says, Kvar shakav, kvar rakav. Went to bed. Oili ish ani nola bli kochav. Woe to a poor person like me who was born under the wrong star. Again, he attributes in his poems his misfortunes, being wrong, born at the wrong time in the wrong place. Uh, and a very firm guy. Now, I'll say it again. Uh... He was respected as a poet, not as a Talmud Chacham, as a poet by big rabbis. There's a famous story in his wanderings. I like this one. In his wanderings, he ended up in France. At that time, the big rabbi in France was Rabbeinu Tam, the leader of the Balitosis. Rabbeinu Tam is a guttle of the traditional variety, Gemar, 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 no question about it. But Rabbeinu Tam was unusual. This is the grandson of Rashi I'm talking about. And that very unusual, and that even though he was super yeshivish, he also was interested a little bit in other things as well. So Rabbeinu Tam was a little bit into diktuk and a little bit into poetry. He even wrote some poems. And when the, the famous story is that when the Ebenezer visited France, Rabbeinu Tam sent him some of his poems. They said, what do you think? And the truth is they weren't good poems because let's face it, Rabbeinu Tam was big in Gemara, in, in Tosfus. He wasn't big in the poetry. And in Spain, the Jews copied the poetic culture from the Arabs. There's a certain type of elitist culture. And the bis- biggest thing you do over there is you diss each other in insulting poems. But it's all part of a game. No, it's all part of the uh, insider culture. So you, r- you write a poem and I say, oh, it's as terrible as, uh, you know, the sunset. And you write me back a poem. No, your poems are worse than sunset. Mine are the sunrise. And, you know, your poems smell like bad flowers. No, my poems smell like good flowers. That's part of how you play the, the game. And so... The famous story is that when Rabbeinu Tom sent him a, 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 a copies of some of his poems, so Ibn Ezra, who was treating him as a member of the tribe, a member of the poetry society, a poetry club, which he wasn't, Rabbeinu Tom was not, but he treated him one, and he said, Who brought this French guy, meaning Rabbeinu Tom, into the house of poetry? How can a czar enter the Kodesh? How can a, a non-holy uh, person enter the holiest place? That's just a joke, you know, in other words, like enter poetry. Even if the poems of Yaakov, because they're made of Thomas Yaakov, were as sweet as the mon. I am the sun, me, Ibn Ezra, I'm the sun. And just like the mon melted in the sun, so your poems melt in my presence. Now, he didn't mean anything bad by that. That's how you talked if you're a member of the, uh, uh, of the poetry club. But Rabbeinu Tom was a real from person, you know, a real from guy, and he was a big on of it, it seems, which is interesting. And he wrote back, uh, Rabbeinu Tom wrote back, he said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm such a failure. Avi Ezri Yeshibu Sipov, he says, the, the, the master of my help, that is to say, my, my master, you, Ibn Ezra, has showed me up. I am an Eved, you know, like it says in the Chumash, I am like your slave, and I bow before your greatness. I'm like a loser compared to you. And then the Ibn Ezra says, like, he didn't get it. You know, 
You're a Godel Adar. You shouldn't talk. I thought you're a member of the society, that you understand the poetic culture, but instead you're taking this seriously. And he felt very bad that he had insulted the person who was really was a Godel Adar. I mean, Rabbeinu Tom in his time was like one of the, the, the biggest rabbis in Torah, period. And Ibn Ezra wrote him back, Hanachon el Avir Amel Roam. Is it pr- proper for a great Godel like you, the, the shepherd of the Jewish people, Lahashpil Rosh Bemichtav el Bazuyam? to lower yourself even a letter to a low-life jerk like me, God forbid that a Malach Elohim, an angel, should bow down to Bilam. Meaning he's calling Rabbeinu Tama Malach, and he's referring to himself as Bilam. All of which just goes to show you that this is how the elitist societies handled in those days. But I come back to my main theme. Is this, is every Rishon a Rishon? Does Ibn Ezra somebody big in, the, in, in, in Gemara learning? No. What really made his mark, made him immortal, was his commentary on the Chumash and the Tanakh. That's what put Ibn Ezra on the map. But again, do we, do we say a Chumash commentator or a Tanakh commentator was big in Gemara? They're two separate things. You can have the one who wears both hats. I mean, Rashi did, for example. But Ibn Ezra is purely Tanakh, Tanakh. And when he wrote his famous commentary on Tanakh, he wrote it as a Moskil. That is to say... He wants the pshat in his famous introduction to the Chumash, to his commentary in the Chumash. He said there are different ways of interpreting the Torah, and that's true. And, you know, there are right ways and the wrong ways and the ways that he likes and the ways he doesn't like. I don't want to give you the long uh, version of it. But uh, he says there are five ways of doing so. Some of them are uh, are the styles of uh, great scholars who are very long-winded uh, he meant like the type, like you'd say, the Abarbanel, even though the Abarbanel lived later than him, but that kind of just goes on and on and on. And he didn't like that. And then he said they're like the Karaites who take everything and they completely disregard all the Chazals. Uh, and he doesn't like that. And then he said you got your Christians and they don't know what they're talking about. And then you have uh, what he would call the Frummies, who simply copy out all the uh, Medrishes. So basically he's a critic of Rashi. I'll, get, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I mean, very simply. Rashi is almost completely quoting from Chazals. So the Benedictus will say like this, what do you have to read Rashi for? Just read the Medrash yourself. Just read the Gemara inside. All Rashi is doing is sharing. Now, that's not really fair to Rashi, but I'm just telling you the perspective of the Ibn Ezra. And what he says he wants to do is the following. And I just want to vote two minutes to this, and I'll let you go. The Because this problem we have even today. How do you interpret the, the Chumash, let's say, for example, uh, or the Nach? <clears throat> There's a style called Drush, which means the Chazal in the Gemara, Darshan and Extra Hay, Avav, Asmichus, uh, various uh, strategies, Zereshava, various uh, interpretive, they call them hermeneutics, interpretive strategies on how to derive halachas or maybe Midrashic ideas from the Psukim. But that's not the Pashim Shab. Ibn Ezra said like this, let's hear it for the Pashib Shat. I want to be the champion of the Pashib Shat. Now, that doesn't mean the Pashib Shat is the sum total of all the ways of reading the Pasuk. He's a front guy. He says, no, that's not true. And if it comes to Allah or something like that, you follow the Gemara, you follow the Chazals. But inquiring minds want to know, what is the plain meaning of what reading over here? A lot of people are so yeshivish and still are, that they don't understand that a Pasuk has its own Shat. Now, Shat is not so simple to get at. Because pshat doesn't necessarily mean literal. I'll give you an example. If it says the Jewish people, 
So literally means they saw a big hand that God stretched out of Egypt. Well, guess what? God doesn't have a hand. So literal is not the word. What does it mean? They saw the power of the Lord expressed over Egypt in drowning Pharaoh's army. So that's the shot. That's the meaning of the Pusuk, even though it doesn't have to necessarily be the literal meaning of the Pusuk. So to understand what things mean in their plain and simple sense is not a, a put-down, or it doesn't uh, take away from the majesty of the words. But you got to start with the Pashim shot. And he said, I'm going to devote myself to that subject. And Deben Ezra became, from then on, for the last thousand years, the first place you go when you want to understand the Chumash and the Tanakh, those parts of the Tanakh of his writings that survive, Alpi Pashim shot. What is going on over there? Again, once you know shot, you can move to other areas. As we all know, there's shot, remis, drash, sod, all that. That's fine. But don't do uh, a situation which you build a building and there's no bottom floor. All you have is the top floor. Because then it'll crash. The shot is the bottom floor. And then on top of that, you build the other parts of the building. So uh, I hope I've made myself too complicated. But it makes the Ibn Ezra, therefore, somewhat controversial. There's no question about that. But also someone who's been constantly reprinted for a thousand years in every Mikras Gedolos. Because there's always those out there who say like this, the drushas are fine, and the fancy Hasidic Shavarts are fine, and, uh, you know, Jonas and Avshitz, I call it the, the, the pilpalistic interpretations, which are really cute, are fine. But what is the shot? And for that, generation after generation has turned to Ibn Ezra. Generation after generation has turned to Ibn Ezra. So sometimes he says things that are a little bit to the left, and sometimes not, and that's always made him controversial, so I can almost guarantee you that although the art scroll has put out Chumash Rashi, and the art scroll has put out Chumash Ramban, and I see now they're putting out Chumash Unklus, they ain't going to put out <laughs> Chumash with Ibn Ezra. He's a little bit too much, too controversial, because he says, I just want to you know, know what the Pusik is saying and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, I think I've given you enough <laughs> For now, Ibn Ezra is a very fascinating character, and I haven't really done uh, justice to it, but how can you in a few words? But if as a result of what I said today, you'll be uh, led to do something you probably never have done, which is open up the Ibn Ezra on this week's Parsha and look up one or two of them, then that will be a nice tribute to his memory, because it's, well, it's almost a thousand years. He died in the 1160s, and we're in 2019. So it's been you know 900 years, it's a long time, and uh, his, his uh, style is uh, still marching on today. Take care. Bye-bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.